First reading is from Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together as Scott reads us the gospel reading. The Lord be with you and And with with thy spirit. spirit. The Holy Gospel, according to St. Matthew, in the 18th chapter, beginning at the first verse. Glory be to thee, O Christ. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles themselves like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, quiet our souls with your love, that we may become more attentive to your voice and to the plight of others. We pray for the sake of him who humbled himself as a child before you, Jesus, your son. Amen. You may be seated. Nineteenth century English preacher Charles Spurgeon I described the psalm that was just read for us, Psalm 131, as a pearl, a pearl among the gems of the Hebrew psalms, and how it would beautifully adorn the necks of those who have learned to be patient in life. Spurgeon commented that Psalm 131, though one of the shortest psalms to read, but it's one of the longest to learn. It's a short ladder to climb, yet it rises to a great height. See, in just three verses, the the psalm contains one of the most foundational virtues of the Judeo-Christian faith, and that is the virtue of quiet contentment. The virtue of quiet contentment. Now, before we press into the psalm, it's just important to distinguish quiet contentment from living a quiet life. You know, you can retreat away into the mountains, to the forest, or into the countryside and live by yourself. You could go off-grid, unplug, live off the land, and you don't have to see or be with anyone. But that doesn't mean you have quiet contentment. Quiet contentment is also different from, you know, having a quiet disposition, right? You can, you can be reserved in your demeanor, you know, soft-spoken introverted, introspective. People say you're calm and collected. But that doesn't mean you have quiet 
contentment. See, quiet contentment has to do with the inward self. It's the composure of your inner being. Now, the late American professor of biblical counseling, uh, David Paulison, uh, he put it this way. The person who has quiet contentment has an inner gyroscope in them. He says that ambition doesn't churn inside them. Failure and despair don't haunt them. Anxiety isn't spinning them into free fall. Regrets don't corrode their inner experience. Irritation and dissatisfaction don't devour them. And they're not stumbling around through the minefield of blind longings and fears. And that person is quiet inside. That person is content inside. See, in this short psalm in Psalm 131, we see just a tiny glimmer of the light and the brilliance of quiet contentment. What it means to be quieted inside and to be contented inwardly in the God of Israel. It's not just this temperament that you develop, but it's specific, a biblical contentment in the God of Israel, the same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in these three verses, we will see what quiet contentment looks like, what quiet contentment is like, and how do we get quiet contentment. So in these three verses, we'll see what quiet contentment looks like, what it is like, and how do we get it. So I invite us now to turn to Psalm 131 in your Bibles or apps or there's a pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 635. So first, what does quiet contentment look like? What does it look like? So in verse 1, here we are actually eavesdropping into King David's conversation with God. And this is David praying to God. Uh, it doesn't sound like he's asking God for anything here. Neither is he venting out his emotions, which is a lot of the Psalms are about. Rather, this is David talking about himself to God. David disclosing himself, his innermost thoughts, to God as though they were close friends, right? That's what you would do to a very, very close friend. You'd just share what you're feeling and thinking. You're not asking for anything. You just want to be heard. You're hoping to be heard. Of course, right, David understood that God knows everything about him. Like, there's nothing that he would share to God that would be news to God. The way David prayed in this psalm, it's a, it's a particular kind of prayer. It's what the ancient sages would say is a prayer of examine, a prayer of examine. The prayer of examine seeks or aims to examine oneself, not just so that you could just ruminate or introspect in yourself, but then to direct that self-reflection to God. Right? It's entrusting yourself to God. Your thoughts to God, just the way you would entrust yourself to your partner or to your friend. Now Spurgeon reflected on this verse and said, A person should be slow to do this upon any matter, for the Lord is not to be trifled with. It's a grand thing for anyone to know their own heart so as to be able to speak about it before God. But yet this is a starting point towards having quiet contentment, knowing yourself truly, and then speaking about yourself honestly to God. To know yourself truly 
and to speak about yourself honestly to God. I mean, I think we will benefit much if we prayed like this more often, to pray this prayer of examine, to self-reflect, and to reflect that self-reflection back to God. Because if you're like me, your prayers may tend to towards asking God for things, right? Or sometimes complaining to God with our groans and sighs and murmurings. Yeah, whenever we ask and complain to God, we rightly do so. God can take it all. We're right to ask and complain, so to speak, or vent. But we will also do well if we just brought ourselves to God and spoke about ourselves truthfully and honestly to Him. God, I'm stressed. God, I'm thankful. God, I'm burning out. God, I'm, I'm at peace. I'm at peace at last. However we are, let God know. Just let God know. Just be in front of Him, though He knows everything. He already knows. He wants to know. He wants to hear from you. He's so keen to just lean over. He's just bending His ear towards our lips. Then we are to ever ascend up to heaven. Speak to Him. He wants to hear from us. The way David prayed here, that's a starting point towards being inwardly quiet and being contented to be in God's presence, to unveil ourselves truthfully and honestly to Him who knows us through and through, who invites us to know ourselves and to bring ourselves to Him into delight and the knowledge of His love for us. So then David brings himself to God and begins to describe what his own quiet contentment looks like. And David does this and this and illustrates it using three different human body parts, as it were. He starts talking about his heart, his eyes, and his feet. David talks about his heart, his eyes, and his feet. So first, the heart. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Whenever we talk about the heart today, we often refer to our gut emotions, right? Or our instinctual desires. But the ancient Jewish meaning is far more complex and it includes pretty much everything that a person is. See, to the ancient Jews, uh, the heart is the engine, the engine of our existence, the engine of our persona. I mean, the close equivalent today, it's whenever we refer to a person's identity, to a person's identity. So for David to say his heart is not lifted up, it's like he's saying he's, he's not put his identity up on a platform or on a pedestal that's far above his reach, far above his own arms could reach. He has to tiptoe, perhaps climb on a ladder to get there. His identity is not high up there in the mountains of ambition or far into the heavens that he has to build a tower up to the clouds or to crown the tops of every hill with altars and sacred groves dedicated to his own name. That's ambition. Of course, there are good and godly ways to be ambitious. But like any good endeavor, they can become an obsession. Like any good thing, they these good things become this oversized golden statues to, to which we may end up offering our bodies 
our families, our kids, our sanity and our integrity up as a sacrifice. As author and pastor Tim Keller puts it, pride and ungodly ambition is to be swollen up beyond one's proper size. See, our hearts are meant to work and keep within a certain size. It, it, can, it can risk being bloated up with pride and ambition. Or it can risk being shriveled up with what? With, with indifference, with passivity, with despair. Your heart will crumble and all that. Our hearts will malfunction and will eventually break the longer it's bloated or the longer it's shriveled. Are our hearts bloated? Or are they shriveled? Are our hearts lifted up? You need to tiptoe. You need to step ladder. You need to build that to get there. We put our identity on places beyond our reach. David talked about his heart and then he talks about his eyes. His eyes. My eyes are not raised too high, he says. Now in the Gospels, Jesus described the eyes as the lamp, the lamp of the body, meaning our eyes guide and steer and direct and lead our bodies where they should go. Right? Whatever our eyes see that has worth, value, and meaning, we guide and steer and drive our bodies to get there, to pursue those things. As our existential engine, so to speak, we chase after what our eyes perceive to be good. But eyes that are raised too high risk becoming puffed up. Puffed up. The Hebrew phrase that David used for raised too high also evokes this image of yeast, leaven that's put in the dough and then you put it in the oven and it begins to rise. It's puffed up in the oven. Our eyes can become so inflamed with over-desire, then our vision gets impaired. We, we won't see clearly, become distracted, or worse, we become blind to where we're headed. See, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings uh, films in the trilogy quite some time ago now, the spirit of the Dark Lord, Sauron, materialized as one great eye that's nested atop the ancient tower of Baradur, and it's pulsating with dark energy and fierce hatred. Now, that great eye is restless in its search over all the Middle Earth for that one ring, his jewel that contains his power and life essence. The great eye of Sauron is perhaps this literary, literary depiction of eyes raised too high. A lamp that's supposed to be filled with light, but it's filled with absolute darkness. It's puffed up with lust for power, restless in its scanning over all the land, searching for himself, searching for itself. This can play out for us in that our own eyes are so raised up that we peek over the picket fences and peek over to our neighbor's And our eyes will scan and search and they evaluate and compare. On your phones, we scroll endlessly, comparing ourselves to others, comparing other people's kids to our kids, other people's vacations, other people's houses, how they look, their careers, other people's joys, 
in our people's pains. Our eyes become restless in their search, tricked into thinking we can find ourselves out there over the picket fences of our lives, in stuff, in experiences, things just over the fence, our eyes raised too high, puffed up, restless, insatiable. How are our eyes when it comes to social media, on our phones? How are our eyes when it comes to wanting more, getting more, experiencing more, seeing more, having more? David talked about his heart, his eyes, and he talked about his feet. His feet. I don't <clears throat> occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. See, the, the Hebrew there evokes this image of feet occupying a place, a domain. Right? And David was resolved for his feet not to occupy places that are too great or too marvelous for him. This is David saying that <clears throat> he isn't trespassing. He's not trespassing into places they're not for him to be in, not for him to enter. Metaphorically speaking, these domains, these occupational places are, for example, the hidden mind of God or his secret will, the chambers of his divine mysteries, or down on earth here, circumstances beyond our individual control. You know, things like the future, trade stock fluctuations, the housing market, forecasting geopolitical outcomes. As plain as the lottery or fortune telling. Right? We, we trespass into these domains, and because these simple fascinations, they end up becoming what? A preoccupation. Right? Our, it, our mind inches over closer to the edge. We play around with fretful speculations, and then suddenly we're spiral, spiraling down into anxiety, to fear, to agitation. We're always on edge being with people. Our feet have trespassed into places too great, too grand, too marvelous for our curious hearts and for our small brains. Do our feet wander around too much? We're over here and then we're over there and then everywhere. We're getting lost in the unknowns and the uncontrollables of life. Trespassing into places we shouldn't be in. Are we occupied? Or rather, are we preoccupied with things too great, too marvelous for us? But for David, quiet contentment is to have his heart, his eyes, and his feet reined in, reined in, kept within the proper reach, kept within the proper size, and kept within the proper domain, kept within their reach kept within the size, kept within the bounds. That's what quiet contentment looks like. Heart, eyes, feet reined in. So then David goes on to describe what quiet contentment is like. We saw what it looks like, but what is it like? In verse 2, quiet contentment is like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child with its mother. Now, for the parents here, you totally understand this. If your children are much older, and this is 
a moment in parenthood for, that I myself am looking forward to with my daughter was far from I could describe weaned. Right? As, a, as a side note, this is the first time that she's going to make it now into her dad's sermon. So it's nothing embarrassing or anything. So my daughter, her name is Astrid, and she's a week before she turns three months old. She only becomes quietly content when her needs are satisfied. But then when she becomes hungry or tired or frustrated, she wails like the world is ending, right? Her, her appetite still holds mastery over her. She hasn't yet tempered her desires. She has not yet gotten a grip on her emotions. She is yet a creature who is ruled by nature and roiled by her instincts. Now, Astrid's relationship with her mom in the beginning had more to do, rightly so, with what she needs from mom and what mom can give to her. Slowly, she learned to love mom's presence, to love mom's warmth, her smiles, her laughter. Right now, Astrid delights communicating back and forth with mom. She enjoys cooing and making all these happy squeals. I see Astrid is leaning more into her relationship with mom and not just in what mom can give her, but in the presence together, in the relationship. Now, it's my and Sally Jane's hope that Astrid learns to be patient, to wait, to simply be to simply be with us, you know, trusting us, being loved by us uh, in quiet contentment. See, this is like the person who is quietly content to simply be, and to simply be with God, to be before Him, to be in His presence, to know as they are fully known by God, to, to love anyone, everything as they are fully loved by God, to not wailing and clamoring for what they can get from God and what God can give them. Not wailing, not screaming, not kicking and screaming. That person has been weaned from the growling and the grumbling of their gut, from the demands of their carnal passions, from the tossing and turning of their feelings and their emotions. See, that person has learned to be patient in all things, to bear all things, to hope in all things, and to endure all things in life. Like a weaned child with its mother is the person who waits upon God, trusting in His sovereign will, who is satisfied by His love, a person quietly contented. This is what quiet contentment is like a weaned child with its mother. So that's what it's like. How do, we, how do we get it? Do we want this for ourselves? I hope we do. I, I do want it for myself. What does it, how do we then get it? In verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope in the Lord. This verse about hoping in God, it it follows after the previous verse, right, about the child being with its mother. See, verse 2 is actually informing how Israel is, as it were, being summoned by their king, King David, to hope in God. Hope in God is like a child with its mother. What's, what's David saying here? See, hope in God here is a state of being. It's a state of being. 
a composure in yourself, like a weaned child who is quiet and content, to just be close with mom. David beckons an entire nation of people, all the Jewish believers, to hope in God as a child looks to their mother for literally everything. Right? Mom is the child's entire world. Put it this way, the heart and the eyes and the feet of that child, they have no taste for ambition, no appetite for power, no hunger for things and stuff and possessions, no thirst for finer adult experiences. Mom is all they want. Mom is all they need. As Christians, are we... Are we excited and just satisfied by knowing we're forgiven by God? That we're loved just as we are and they're change- He's changing us by His promise from the inside out for the love of everyone. Do we get excited that we are named child of God in Jesus? Or do we want more things? We just want another adrenaline hit, another experience, another thing here. Another medal, another thing on the wall. In contrast, we're not to hope in God like a child wailing and screaming for what they want, when they want it, and how they want it. We are to hope in God like a child weaned, quieted, contented, waiting, waiting, enduring in the plenty and in the lack. Because that child knows. That child trusts that their mom loves them. That mom will always be there for them. And even though they're, they're in anxiety or even as they're having to wait for a long time with tears, tears running down their cheeks, they know that mom will always be there. That's literally all that matters to the child. Mom, you're, you're here. You'll always be here. And though I cry, you'll always be here. So I can wait. I can endure just a little more. Just a little more. You're always here. In our gospel reading, David's greater son, Jesus, beckons now the whole world, the whole universe, for anyone to come after him, to become as children. Children who are always dependent on their caregivers. Children who acknowledge their smallness. Children who are aware of their weakness. But children who are brimming with innocent wonder, who are always giddy and so excited at any chance to see and taste the greatness and the grandness and the goodness of God displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Such excitability, such novelty. Do we have that? Is it fresh in you again? This joy and this love and delight as children of God, forgiven, saved for a purpose, saved for a mission, saved to be transformed, to be like the child of God, Jesus. For unless we become like children, our hearts will never truly be lifted up to where Christ in glory reigns. Our eyes will never truly perceive and see and appraise the kingdom of God in us and around us and around the world. And our feet will never step in or occupy the realms of divine splendor and perfections 
in the new creation of all things. Or unless we become like children, we will never step foot in the kingdom of heaven. Do we hope in Jesus as a child hopes for their mother? Do we look to Jesus as the child looks to their mother? Not kicking and screaming for what they want, but, but quieted and content to feel and know his presence around us, in us, in the Holy Spirit. Trusting in all things for his care each day at a time, each moment at a time. Knowing then to endure all things in the plenty and in the lack. As we're waiting and waiting and waiting for his coming again to make everything new. Hope in the Lord. Hope in God. Let us end in the short closing prayer that Charles Spurgeon had written for this psalm in his commentary. Uh, Let's pray together. O Lord, as a parent weans a child, so do thou wean us. And then shall we fix all our hope on thee alone. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.